Well, I wonder if you had to turn to the person next to you and simply say how you feel as you watch the news. As you watch the news day by day, just turn to the person next to you and say, what are the feelings that come into your mind? Okay. Anybody brave enough to shout out what they heard from the other person without giving the other person's name away? Anybody shout out? Despair? Despair? Dismay? Okay. Despair. That's great. Pardon? Oh gosh. <laughs> yes, I think that. Yeah, it was it was. Yeah. Hmm. Any others? Exasperated. Longest word of the morning. Yep. One over here. Depressed. Anxious. Astounded. Disappointed. It's not great, is it? The reality is that we live in a time where our culture, our society, our nations, our city are going through incredible turmoil. One social commentator and journalist, Bill Bishop, wrote this, the world is undergoing transition where everything is changing and nothing can be predicted. In the words of Obi-Wan Kenobi, there is a deep disturbance in the force. <laughs> Every week seemingly, seemingly brings about a new crisis. I don't know about you, but I've lost count of the times when I've been listening to the radio or, or, or watching the TV, and a commentator has said, we have never seen this before. This is new. This is different. Whether it's the Prime Minister being found guilty of acting unlawfully, the language and behaviour at Westminster, with MPs pleading with each other to speak more reasonably to one another, to speak more peaceably, to speak more agreeably to each other. The Prime Minister having to apologise to the Queen, having to phone the Queen and apologise for having given her unlawful advice. The reality is that we have never seen something like this before. A teenager addressing the United Nations, telling the world's leaders how angry she is at them for having betrayed her generation around climate change. Those two pictures are just a year apart. That was Greta Thunberg a year ago demonstrating by herself. And yet within 12 months, she has provoked, evoked a global movement where children, for the right reasons, see a Friday off school and thinking, I want to do that, not simply because it's a Friday off school, but because they care passionately, passionately about this issue. And the reality is that most of us in this church this morning, we've been brought up to think that this is just a blip. That the politics we see around us in this country and, and across the Atlantic Ocean, that is somehow a blip. That's somehow an aberration. That at some point 
in the future, things will go back to normal. Things will go back to how they were. I mentioned last week, but was struck two weeks ago when somebody commented on Twitter how reassuring they found it, watching the Supreme Court as they were deliberating about whether the, what the, the Prime Minister had done was, was lawful or not. And somebody wrote this. She said, I can't quite understand why I'm finding it so reassuring and so comforting to watch the Supreme Court. And then she said this, I've realized I've forgotten what it was like for the grown-ups to be in charge. And what a sad commentary on, on our times and our culture and our, on our nation that we have come to that, that we've forgotten what it's like for the grown-ups to be in charge. Because our politicians, for all their good motives and good reasons, very sincerely held on different sides, sadly, are not behaving like grown-ups. And we think somehow that we can press reset that we can turn the country off and turn it back on again, and somehow things will go back to normal. But the reality is that probably this is the new normal. There's an encouraging thought for this morning at quarter to 12. This is the new normal. There's no guarantee that things will go back to how we thought they should be, in whatever political persuasion you are, because after 250 years of progress, of things we thought getting better and better, the reality is this is how things are. And what we're seeing is perhaps the end of what was called modernity and the Enlightenment. And we're now in this thing called post-modernity where the future is impossible to predict. Because the reality is that the world that we live in is facing five great crises. Social, economic, religious, political, and environmental, all at the same time. Now, we may disagree about which of those is the most important, but the reality is that all five are happening at the same time. At the same time, we're seeing a change in the world. Cities are growing in size and influence. The population of Edinburgh has increased by 12% in the last 10 years. Not just in August, when the festivals are on, but our city, its population has increased by 12% in the last <laughs> 10 years. 70% of the population of Scotland now live in Glasgow, Edinburgh, Stirling, Perth and Dundee. 70%. And the dream of the Enlightenment was that all places would become like a northern city, like Bonn, that's a picture of Bonn, or Berlin, or Gothenburg, or Stockholm. And we'd all have fantastic coffee shops, and we'd all have creative communities, and we'd all have wonderful tram systems. <laughs> Discuss. But that was the ideal, that was the dream. But for some people, the dream is turning into a nightmare. One observer that has said that cities like London and Chicago have become not so much magnets to those suffering economic hardship, they're more like death stars. And the reality is that whether it's Washington, D.C., where we were on holiday two or three weeks ago, whether it's Edinburgh, whether it's London, whether it's Mumbai, whether it's Melbourne, we see this paradox occurring where the richest of the rich walk past every day the poorest of the poor. 
where within one block or half a mile, there are places and areas of incredible wealth sitting alongside areas of incredible economic deprivation. The rich are getting richer, but the poor are getting poorer. And it's happening all around us, and it's happening in our cities. Leslie Newbegin was one of the, the church's most influential thinkers about mission and ministry in the last 50 or 60 years. For many years, he was a, a Methodist uh, bishop because he also was part of the United Church in southern India. An incredible thinker about mission and, and, and the way in which the church should react. And when he retired, he, he moved from South India to Birmingham in, in the West Midlands in England, where I used to live and work. And he actually lectured me at Theological College at Vicar Factory. He, he, he lectured me. Incredibly sharp mind. And he was asked, after 50 years of living in South India and moving from South India to Birmingham, what was the greatest challenge? And his reply took people aback. It wasn't the fact that the curry houses in Birmingham were better than the curry houses in South India. It wasn't the cross-cultural stuff that he found difficult. He said this, what I find most challenging is the disappearance of hope. That moving from South India to Birmingham in the West Midlands, he saw that something had happened to his native country. And what had happened was the disappearance of hope. You see, over the last 50 or 60 years, the church has become increasingly sidelined and marginalized. Politicians talk about the faith community as if we're something separate, as if we're not part of the rest of... They don't talk about the football community or the rugby community as if we're separate. They talk about the faith community as though we are. And we've become sidelined and marginalized it's been said that we're the new heretics now, on the, on the wrong side of, of most people's thought lives, on the edges of society, where perhaps some people think the church should always be, and perhaps where the church always does its best work. And then other people have started to wonder, well, maybe actually God may be behind this. And what if it is God messing with the Western world? And what we're seeing in all this tumult and stirring up and change is actually God himself making people think more deeply about life, making people think more deeply about death, making people think about what is really going on in society and what really is life about. And maybe, maybe, just maybe, God will use a time like this just as he has throughout the history of humanity to call people back to himself in unprecedented <laughs> numbers. Because the reality is that now the church is in exile. We stand apart from mainstream thought and mainstream culture. We're different. We think differently. After hundreds of years of shaping how people think and live, the church now finds itself in exile. And we'll consider that verse from Jeremiah 29 later on. The advice to the people when they were in exile in the Old Testament was to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. And it's against that background of change and tumult and, 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 and things just being upside down often all around us that I want to remind us as a church what it is and who it is God, we believe, is calling us to be over the next five or six years. Hopefully, as, as Libby said, you um, received this morning this uh, brochure, I think is a better name for it, rather than leaflet. 
It's a brochure um, about our vision, and we'll go through that in a minute. But I want to base what I'm saying from that passage that Margie read for us in in Luke chapter 9, and and look at what God is saying to us through Luke chapter 9. So if you've got a, a Bible on your smartphone or your tablet, or if you haven't got a Bible, if you want to grab one from the back on the ground floor at the front of the balcony, just Stand up now and go and get one if you haven't got a Bible, because we're going to take a quick overview of Luke chapter 9. So you're going to find it really helpful to actually have the passage open in front of you. Because Luke chapter 9 is like the hinge chapter in Luke's gospel. It contains the hinge verse, verse 51, but Luke chapter 9 stands right at the center of Luke's gospel. After this, nothing will ever be the same again. It won't be the same again for Jesus, it won't be the same again for the disciples, and it certainly hasn't been the same for the church. And everything stands and and turns and falls on Luke chapter 9 in the gospel of Luke. And, And Luke builds up to that passage that Marjorie read for us at the end, which stands as a sort of climax at the end of Luke chapter 9. It's full of amazing opportunities for the disciples. They're sent out in verses 1 to 6 by Jesus to go and and, and proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. They come back and they tell Jesus uh, what's happened. When when they come back, Jesus starts to preach and to teach and a crowd gathers, a huge crowd. There's 5,000 men. We're not told how many women. We're not told how many children. And they're hungry. And and Jesus interestingly says to the disciples, when the disciples said, how are we going to find food to find this lot? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And then later, when they find a small boy and they they steal his fish and and bread, and, and well, he offers it to them, probably with some, but you don't want that, do you? They just don't take it off him. What's interesting is that, is that Jesus prays over the fish, and he prays over the loaves, but look carefully at what happens next. It says Jesus gives the fish and the loaves to the disciples, and it's the disciples that feed the crowd. I've said this before, but if you've got a church Bible and it says in that little bit, edit bit at the top, Jesus feeds the 5,000 and you've got a pen, you've got my permission to take your pen out and draw a big line through Jesus feeds the 5,000 because it's not true. Jesus didn't feed the 5,000. The whole point of the story is that it's the disciples who feed the 5,000. The disciples are given a part to play. The disciples are given a role. The disciples are the one who take the fish and the loaves and they're the one who have to give it out to the crowd who keep on looking back in the basket and there's still more fish and there's more bread in the basket. It's the disciples who are feeding the the crowd. It's not Jesus who were feeding the 5,000. And then what comes next after that is what comes next is, well, the transfiguration. Just before that, Jesus has said, well, who, who do people say I am? Uh, the disciples say, lots of people say John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah. But Peter makes his famous declaration, you're the Messiah. Then Jesus outlines what's going to happen, verses 21 to 27. He speaks about opposition. He speaks about rejection. And he speaks for the first time about the fact that he's going to die. And he begins to outline the cost of discipleship, what it means to follow him. Then three of them, Peter, James, and John, see Jesus transfigured. They see Moses and Elijah. Imagine what that was like. I'm going to trip over this rug, aren't I? I'm going to have to... I can see some of you feeling anxious on my behalf, so I shall flatten it. But they go up the mountain, and they see Moses and Elijah. 
That, what's the equivalent? The equivalent is me seeing Sir Bobby Charlton. If you were a first century Jew and you went up a mountain and you saw Moses and Elijah, for you it would be, there's Moses, there's Elijah, and there's Jesus. Because in your mind's eye, Moses and Elijah were well, just amazing. It would be like me seeing Sir Bobby Charlton, which I did on a train. He was sitting just across the aisle from me, and I didn't realize until two minutes before we got off the train. He'd been there all the way from London, and I could have had a conversation with Sir Bobby Charlton, but I didn't. Peter, James, and John see Moses and Elijah. Amazing. Then they come down off the mountain. It's been just incredible. Jesus again heals a boy. He then predicts his death a second time, and the disciples don't get it. Verse 45, what are they doing immediately after Jesus has said, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be taken, I'm going to be put to death? What happens? The disciples are arguing about who is the greatest. Not between Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. They're arguing which amongst them is the greatest. I love Jesus more than you. No, I do. I'll do more for Jesus than you will. Competition and comparison, which has always been there in the church and always is so destructive and always is so damaging and always is so toxic, but the reality is that we still do it. Compare ourselves to other Christians. Or as a church, compare ourselves to other churches. We're better than central. We're more spiritual than destiny. We're louder in our music than Hillsong. Maybe not. <laughs> but it's a dangerous game to play if you start to go down that route. And what does Jesus do? He points to a child and says, unless you become childlike, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's not about being great. It's not about all this com competition and comparison. But he takes a child and says, unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. There's something incredibly profound and simple and humbling about a child. You see it in Greta Thunberg lecturing the United Nations. I saw it this week on Tuesday. I was in Milton Keynes at a, a World Vision Day of Prayer. 350 people from World Vision staff from across the UK gathered together to pray, along with other World Vision staff around the world. And in the middle of it, we were led in prayer by a nine-year-old called Molly. And that was the moment that most of us will remember, when a nine-year-old stood in front of 350 leaders and led us in prayer. Incredibly profound, yet incredibly simple, but also incredibly humbling. The hinge verse comes next, verse 51. Jesus resolutely sets his face towards Jerusalem. Other translations have something like, he set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. And what Jesus is doing is that from now on, he's heading towards Jerusalem. Nothing is going to distract him. He knows what lies awaiting him there. He knows it's going to be death. He knows it's going to be arrest. He knows it's going to be crucifixion. He knows it's going to be rejection. He knows it's going to be betrayal. But Jesus now is heading towards Jerusalem. And he resolutely sets his face towards the cross. And as I said, after this, there's literally no turning back. There's no going back to Capernaum. There's no going back to Galilee. 
There's no going back to mum. There's no going back to his brothers and sisters. After this, he's setting his face towards Jerusalem. And the route that they decide to take takes them past and into a Samaritan village. And because Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem, the Samaritans say, you're not welcome here. It's like somebody passing through Edinburgh on their way to Glasgow. You'll have had your tea. Keep moving. Keep moving. And James and John, perhaps mindful of the discussion about who is the greatest, they come forward and they, they, it sounds so spiritual. Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven on this village. We'll show them, Jesus, and we'll show you at the same time. And Jesus simply rebukes them and says, no, that's not how my kingdom works. I've taught you to live differently. I've taught you to pray differently. I've taught you to respond differently. Life in the kingdom is different to that. And then three people come forward. And each of them in their own way is called by Jesus to follow him. And the response that Jesus gives to each of them can appear to be almost curt and dismissive and and almost sniffy. First person actually volunteers. He comes forward and says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus simply looks at him and says, well, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I.e., if you follow me, there are no guarantees, there are no rewards, there's no accommodation, and it's going to be hard. Do you really know what you're signing up for? Brackets, no, I don't think you do. And then he looks at the second person. The the phrase that Jesus uses is that significant phrase that a rabbi would use to somebody when they say, follow me. Because when a rabbi said, follow me, what they were doing was they were identifying somebody with potential. When a rabbi said to a person, follow me, it was a technical phrase. It meant, you can come and be my follower. You have the potential to sit at my feet. You have the potential to know what I know. You have the potential to do what I do. You have the potential to become like me. So for Jesus to look at somebody and say, follow me, like any rabbi was significant. The person responds quite reasonably and says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. In, in Jewish culture, there was no higher duty than burying your father. It was the most important thing that you could do. Some of us have had that heartbreaking privilege. Our parents have died. And it's, it's the last thing that we've been able to do for them, perhaps, is to bury them well. It's to show our love and, and gratitude and thanksgiving for all that they've given to us by burying them well. It's a perfectly reasonable response. Jesus replies with an absolutely cutting statement, let the dead go and bury their own. What Jesus is saying is this is not business as usual. This is different. And all the normal rules no longer apply. Somebody else steps forward, a third person, and says, I'll come and follow you, and, but I want to go back and say goodbye to my family first. Again, perfectly reasonable reply. And Jesus says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. 
And he uses this analogy, this parable, and says, if you're plowing a field, the last thing you do is look behind you. Because as you're looking behind you, as you're plowing a field, then the plow starts to go all over the place. The closest we get is if you're cutting your lawn, if you're mowing your grass, and you're going for those, you know, you're trying to create Lord's Cricket Ground or Hampden Park or Murrayfield with the lines that go up and down, the last thing you do is look back. Because if you look back, the lawnmower is going to go all over the place. That's the analogy that Jesus is using. He's saying you don't look back because this is not business as usual. And that framework forms the context for this brochure, this strategy. Because what we're saying is that this isn't business as usual. That what we believe that Jesus is calling us to do and be over the next six years, in light of the mess of our society, means that it cannot be business as usual. There's that particular verse from Isaiah at 54, that when we were going through an 18-month uh, process thinking about what God was calling us to do and be over the next six years, um, the strategy group at one point, and when we were thinking this summer, it came back. Uh, these verses from Isaiah 54, 52, sorry, came to mind. Isaiah 52 and verse 4, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. And what we sent God calling us to do was not to start again, and this strategy builds on what we've done over the last five years, but what God was calling us to do was to go deeper and wider, to be stretched, to stretch our tent curtains wide, to lengthen our cords, to strengthen our stakes, to go deeper. And that's why we sent God telling us, to do these three things, to change lives, to transform society, and to deepen our influence. Changing lives is very simply about seeing, firstly, those of us in the church deepen our relationship with Jesus, growing in our relationship with Jesus, becoming more aware of our relationship with Jesus, and going deeper in our relationship with Jesus. But as Jesus changes us, then we long to see more people come to know him. We long to see more people come to know Jesus. So we'll carry on running things like Alpha. We'll carry on running things like Freedom in Christ. But we'll also intentionally challenge one another to see one of our friends come to an event, come to a service, come to a course in some way, come to serve maybe at our Saturday meal, and get them into the sphere of influence of the church every 12 months over the next five years. So we're not asking you to bring 10 people every year. We're asking you to focus on one person every 12 months and to see that person begin to be introduced to the person of Jesus during those 12 months. And as we see individual lives changed, then we want to see society collectively transform. That's the second strand, transforming society. We want to expand and build on the meal that we've been running for five and a half years on a Saturday. We want to expand it, and we'd love to see it not just be a meal. That's important, and that community is important. But we'd love to see it become a place where people make the first step to a link with another agency like Edinburgh City Mission or Bethany or, or Christians Against Poverty, or, or perhaps find help in finding accommodation or, or finding a job or finding training. That it's not just a meal, but it, it's much more than that. 
And alongside that, we'd love to expand and build on our counseling service and have some sort of wholeness, wellness, sanctuary thing that can be like an umbrella where people can find places to meet all sorts of different needs. Perhaps through a course like a marriage course or a marriage preparation course or a a course on divorce recovery or emotional or or mental health resilience or, or something, but a place where they can come and where God can start to to bring about transformation. And then finally, deepening our influence. We, We want to encourage Christians that we know from this church and other churches to be a public voice so that as a church in Scotland, we become known for what we're for rather than what we're against. We don't know how that's going to play out. We don't know what that means, but we want to be open to God and his leading and direction. But also as part of deepening our influence, we're going to set a target of planting three churches or congregations or services within the next six years. We've planted two in the last six years. We believe that God's calling us to up the ante slightly and plant three in the next six These might be in Edinburgh, they might be beyond Edinburgh. We've already had several approaches from people outside of Edinburgh asking us to plant a church where they are, saying, please would you come and bring something of what we see in P's and G's to where we are. Now, we're not proposing a franchise. It's not like McDonald's. Um, You know, the green circle, P's and G's church won't appear everywhere. And each one will be different because of its context and because of the people that go and the people that live there and the leaders that lead it. But it should have a feel of P's and G's. Something of P's and G's DNA. Something of P's and G's theology. Something of P's and G's expression. There's a little sentence in the middle of this document. In the middle, when we eventually folded it the right way and took the staples out, Right in the middle, under what is stretch 25, there are two lines at the bot- halfway in the bottom that says, stretch 25 is not business as usual. This is a strategy to help change Scotland. Now, when I fir- if I'm honest, when I first wrote that, never mind read it, I thought, that is a bold claim. But we want to play our part, along with other churches in the city, along with other churches across Scotland, along with other agencies, because we believe passionately that Jesus is the only one who can change our nation, that Jesus is the only one who can bring about hope. Jesus is the only one that can bring about change. Jesus is the only one who can restore and refresh and redeem and renew. And because of what Jesus means to us, we want more and more people to come to know him. At the essence, that's what this strategy is about. More people coming to know Jesus and more people growing deeper in their discipleship of Jesus. It's going to stretch us. Being stretched is never comfortable. Being stretched is never easy. Being stretched is demanding and challenging. But we believe that this is where God is calling us. And over the next few weeks, we'll be discerning together 
what that means for each of us.